Uh, if you have Bibles, uh, we are finishing 2 Timothy this morning. Uh, and if you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles that Dana mentioned just a second ago, uh, page 996 uh, is where you will find um, today's text. An incredibly uh, common flaw of youth is the flaw of overconfidence. Uh, when we're young, we are, many of us, not all of us, but many of us, are inclined to overestimate ourselves, uh, our abilities, our importance, and even our endurance. Uh, during college, uh, a guest speaker came to a campus ministry that I was part of. And as he neared the end of his talk, um, he asked us in the, in the audience that evening um, to look to our right and then to look to our left. And he said, statistically, one of the three of you, several years from now, will no longer be following Jesus. Um, that's a, a public speaking tactic. Uh, it's provocative. It's a little bit of fear-mongering. Uh, but it was effective in, in getting us that were sitting there that evening. It was getting us to think. The thinking that most of us did, however, was pretty shallow. Uh, it was overconfident. It was self-righteous. I mean, we were Christians on a secular college campus, after all. Uh, we were the ones in the room that night who took our faith seriously and were committed to try to follow Jesus in an environment and in a season of life where it would be easy not to do that. And so, sure, that's what the statistics show, but not us. That might be true for everybody else or, or other groups of people, but not us. Of course, as it's played out, it is us. Absolutely is us. It's shaken out almost exactly that way over the last 15 years or so. Some uh, have made newsworthy shipwrecks of their lives. One man in the room that night became a youth pastor, groomed a 15-year-old in his youth group, and was arrested and convicted of statutory rape. Others in the room that night became avowed atheists and remain to this day incredibly hostile to anything related to the things of God. Still others, as Paul will refer to it in this text, have fallen in love with this present world and just more, much more slowly, gradually, but surely drifted away from faith. When I was in my late teens and when I was in my early 20s, I thought, never me. Never me. It's not going to be me. I'm better than that. But now, having watched friends walk away from faith, having had pastors and mentors of mine in the faith disqualify themselves and walk away from faith, I have a lot more fear and trepidation. And it's more like a hope, and by God's grace, a confident one, will I make it? Will we make it? And God, I hope that the answer to that is yes. This letter of 2 Timothy the last words of the Apostle Paul that we have recorded for us in Scripture. And some of the last words of his entire life. They're written not long before his death in Rome uh, in the mid-60s A.D. These words from Paul are nourishment and our sustenance for our hope. For a much more humble and much less naive form of confidence that by the grace of God, you and I might actually endure to the end. Years before 2 Timothy was written, in the midst of his missionary journeys, in the midst of a very fruitful, very busy missionary life, Paul spoke about his own hope, his own expectation that he would endure. 
In Acts chapter 20, he, he calls the elders of the church in Ephesus around him. And he says to them, Now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Paul then goes on to say, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Fast forward now to 2 Timothy chapter 4. And now at the end of his life, again addressing a leader at the church in Ephesus, this time his own son, his own child in the faith, Timothy, Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. If only I may finish... I have finished. The more that I live, the more fascinated I become by the gap in between those two statements and by what it takes to go from if only I may finish to I have finished. And the Apostle Paul's life was a life of endurance. He made it. He made it. And he calls Timothy, and by extension, he calls all followers of Jesus in this letter to the same endurance. And so as we close this series, and as we've reached this last week in the Lenten season, remembering our own weakness, remembering our own fickleness, remembering our mortality and the sin that causes it, remembering that you and I are prone to wander, prone to walk away, this morning may the word of God, which proclaims the finished work of Christ, which proclaims the hope of his appearing, May that sustain our endurance today and really every single day until we can also say with Paul, I have finished the race. And I invite you to listen now with open ears to this book that we love, 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist Fulfill your ministry. Verse 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Verse 9. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychius I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. 
Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Verse 19, greet Prissa and Aquila in the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers and sisters. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Lord God, help us to know your ways, teach us your paths, lead us in your truth, and teach us. For you are the God of our salvation, and for you we wait all day long. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. We'll look at this uh, chapter together this morning in three parts. The legacy of endurance, the eternal focus of endurance, and the everyday nature of endurance. So first, the legacy of endurance. As Paul's life is coming to a close, he charges Timothy to carry on a legacy of endurance. And this has been repeated over and again through both of these letters that Paul writes to Timothy. Here in this final chapter, though, this final chapter of his final letter, this charge is as solemn as ever a charge that Paul offers. It's not just, as you heard, a charge from one man to another. It's a charge in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who will judge the living and the dead. It's a charge by the appearing, by the very kingdom of Jesus. Why such weighty words? Because the Christian faith remains intact. The Christian faith is preserved and faithfully passed down for generations through the endurance of the people of God. Ultimately, of course, God reveals his truth. God is the one who preserves his truth. But when you become a Christian, when you come to trust in the finished work of Jesus, you enter into a legacy of endurance. For thousands of years, God's faithful people have known suffering and hardship and persecution and trial and doubt and sorrow and the burden of sin, their own and the burden of the sin of the world around us. And by the grace of God, for generations, the people of God have endured it. This is what the author of Hebrews refers to when he speaks of the great cloud of witnesses. And that heritage of endurance is meant to fuel our own. It's meant to remind us for the inevitable moments in life when it just feels unbearable, when the world feels dark, and when the purposes of God are next to impossible to perceive. You and I are not the first people to find ourselves in such a position. And it's now our turn in this time and in this place to carry on the legacy of endurance of the people of God. What specifically is that legacy? Paul here writes nine imperatives for Timothy. And much of what Paul writes to Timothy applies particularly to him and then to those after Timothy who serve as leaders in Jesus' church. 
But it's all summed up in this final line in verse 5. Fulfill your ministry. Fulfill your ministry. So Timothy has a ministry to fulfill. And as a Christian, so do you. So do I. So do each one of us. And the specifics will be different. Just like on that beach after his resurrection where Jesus is with the Apostle Peter and the Apostle John, the point for us is not to compare and then complain how ours is harder, worse, whatever. The point is to do the work that God has prepared for us to do, for each one of us. For Timothy, as Paul writes here, that means preaching the word. Preaching the word. That's the content in the legacy of faith that he is to pass along. Not general wisdom or self-help principles for life, but the word. The, The whole counsel of God, as Paul refers to it in Acts chapter 20. The gospel, the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's to be ready in season and out of season. So not only when it's convenient, not only when he's prepared, but all the time. And some of you will testify to this by your own experience in your own life. Many or even most of the critical moments when other people are responsive to the truth of God, many of those moments, most of those moments are unplanned. And many or most of those moments come when you are tired And when you're unprepared and when you'd rather be doing a hundred different things. Most of us are perhaps familiar with Jesus' famous miracle of feeding the 5,000, which was actually more like 12,000 because the 5,000 only counted the men and there were also many women and children there. But in Matthew chapter 14, do you know how that account of Jesus feeding the 5,000 begins? Jesus has just heard the news that his dear friend, his forerunner in the faith, John the Baptist, has been beheaded at the hands of King Herod. And he's saddened by that. And he's burdened by that. And it says in Matthew 14, he withdraws to a desolate place by himself. And that's where the crowds find him, and that's where the feeding of the 5,000 then plays out. We don't always get to set in our lives, if that's Jesus, withdrawing and the crowds following him there. You and I will not always get to set the times and the venues. There's a need, yes, for rest. There's a need for us to have boundaries in our lives. There's health to that. But if we draw our boundaries too rigidly, if we're not also ready out of season, we miss opportunities to witness and to be part of the powerful work of God through us in the lives of other people. Timothy is also to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. This is the the range of what the word of God does. It affects us intellectually, it affects us morally, it affects us emotionally. And it does everything from mildly correct us to strongly rebuke us to affirm us in the things that are faithful and good about our lives. All of it is to be done in a patient manner through the method of instruction, through the method of teaching, as Paul says here. And we need this for the legacy of endurance. We need this in every age, as we saw last week, and it continues into this chapter, Because the last days have already begun. So already in the first century, people were not enduring sound teaching. And they were accumulating for themselves teachers and voices around them who would, as Paul says, tickle their ears. That's what the literal phrase of itching ears means. People who would tickle their ears, who would tell them what they wanted to hear. And so today, in an age where conventional wisdom tells us to categorically and systemically block out all negative voices. Have you heard that in conventional wisdom? 
if there's a negative voice, if there's naysayers, people that tell you no, just block all that stuff out categorically and systemically. This is a really critical word of caution for us all because people who love us will not always tell us what we want to hear. People who love us will maybe even often tell us, be the only ones who tell us what we don't want to hear. And so before we block someone off, block someone out or write someone off as a quote-unquote negative voice, actually consider deeply whether or not that person might be trying to, to save you from self-destruction, from great harm in your own life. Related to this, Christians, by definition, we are those who make Jesus the fixed point of our lives. And what that means is that everything else in our lives is flexible around that. We are prone to make something else, all of us different specific things perhaps, something else the fixed point, and to instead then make Jesus and the kingdom of God flexible around whatever that other fixed point is. Paul writes of our passions. It could be our finances. It could be our sexuality. It could be our comfort. And we attempt to make Jesus and his kingdom flexible around whatever that fixed point of our life is. And here's the thing. You will find teachers. You will find voices to support all of that and more. If you want to start with the conclusion of what your life already looks like and find support and affirmation to keep living that way, you will find it. It will not be hard to find. But the moment that we make anything else the fixed point of our lives, the moment that Jesus becomes flexible around that, that is the path of turning away from truth. That is the path of wandering off into myths. And this legacy of endurance of the people of God, it stands or it falls on Jesus being and remaining the fixed point of our lives. So picking it up in verse 5 then, Timothy's ministry also includes being sober-minded. Rather than being intoxicated by passions or by rubber-stamping ear ticklers, he says, be sober, be alert. He says, endure suffering, because as, he's already, as Paul's already written, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will endure suffering. All who steward the faithful gospel of Jesus will endure suffering. He says, do the work of an evangelist. And I love that because he's saying, don't just sit back on your heels and defend the truth when other people attack it. Actually, storm the gates of hell as Jesus established his church to do. Actually, go on the offensive in that sense. Proclaim the good news to those who don't yet know it so that they too might believe and might enter the kingdom of Jesus. All that to say, fulfill your ministry. Last week, if you were here, I appealed to the over 50 crowd in the room. And as we talked about gospel-shaped grit, I hope you were encouraged by that. By the grace of God, you already have some measure of that grit within you if you still find in your heart a deep desire to know and follow Jesus and you've lived that many years. We need you, in light of that, to then confidently step into the lives of younger people. Today, let me appeal to those of you in the room under the age of 50. And again, this is an arbitrary number. Don't like read too much into 50. I'm not trying to offend you if you're over that or whatever. It's just a number. To those of you who are under 50, give or take, like Timothy and Paul, think about this, your models in the faith, your examples are not always going to be there. And at some point, and I would argue, this begins right now. We, you and I, we are meant to become those examples of endurance for other people. 
And preparation and potential must at some point in our lives actually become realized experience. We are meant to pick up the mantle. The faithful men and women of God who have gone before us will soon be, as Paul uses the word, departing. So will you, those of you under 50 in the room, will you take their place? Will you be that in this generation? Will you carry on this legacy of endurance for the next one? That's the legacy of endurance. Second, let's talk about the eternal focus of endurance. As we prepare to celebrate Holy Week, it's interesting to observe and to consider that this Roman prison is essentially the Apostle Paul's Gethsemane. So he's in this prison, he's sitting there, he knows death awaits him. He's been deserted by most of his friends, and yet he says, may it not be charged against them. He feels the weight of what he's about to experience, and yet he's ready and he's willing. How is that possible? It's possible because just like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, his eyes are fixed on heaven. His eyes are fixed on eternity. And that's why he speaks of his death as both a drink offering and a departure. A drink offering, referring to the imagery from the Old Testament, it's a sacrifice. Paul is laying down his life for God and for the gospel. It's costly and it's difficult. But it's also, at the same time, an anticipated departure. The word there, the imagery he's borrowing there is from uh, shipping, from the maritime field. And like a ship weighing anchor and setting off for a distant land, Paul is ready. He's ready to leave this life and to arrive on the shores of the far country of heaven. This eternal perspective is central in Paul's endurance. And he speaks here of the reward that is waiting for him in heaven, the crown of righteousness. That is not, for Paul, an arbitrary or unrelated reward. It's not like a bribe that God is holding out to him so that he behaves a different way over the course of his life. It's not like God saying, well, I know you want to do all that other stuff, but if you, if you live this other way, instead, here's $100 for you. It's the, it's the consummation, it's the conclusion of the life by the grace of God that Paul is already pursuing and living. Heavenly rewards are merely the fulfillment of what our lives in Christ have already been about. Jesus completes the good work that he has begun. He completes that in you. He completes that in the world. And that is our reward. Not only is there a reward, Paul writes, but Jesus is the righteous judge. And imagine the hope of that thought for a man presently imprisoned under an unjust judge like the Roman Emperor Nero. In our modern sensibilities, We hear the word judge, this idea of Jesus as judge. We don't like the sound of that. We don't like that thought. But when you're sitting on death row, subject to the injustices and the evils of a dictator like Nero, nothing would give you more confidence in the kingdom of God than knowing that Nero's verdict means nothing compared to the verdict of Jesus. Nero says, that's why we've seen in this letter, Nero says, Paul, you will die. And Paul responds, Christ has abolished death. And this isn't just fuel for Paul's endurance and Timothy's endurance. It's fuel for ours. Because as Paul writes, this reward, this just judgment of Jesus is for all who love his appearing. It's for all who love his appearing. Now, who is it that loves the appearing of Jesus? It's certainly not those who persist in rejection, those who persist in rebellion against him, 
Like the wicked tenants in one of Jesus' parables, they are those who dread the return, who dread the appearing of the owner of the vineyard. But those who look to Jesus for salvation, those who trust in his life and his death and his resurrection, we can't wait for his return. It can't come fast enough. His return is our salvation. It's the completion. It's the fulfillment of Jesus, as we sing sometimes, making all things new. And this hope, this confident expectation of Jesus' appearing, his return, that's an essential ingredient for our endurance. If we love this world more than the appearing of Jesus, we will turn away. If we seek our best life now, and we, fors- we will, by doing so, forsake the truly best life, the greatest life, which is the life with Jesus for eternity. As he will proceed to say down in verse 18, our ultimate safety is eternal. Our ultimate safety is eternal. It's not circumstantial. Circumstantially, Paul is in chains. He's about to be executed. And our ultimate safety is not relational either. Because relationally, Paul's been burned and deserted by most people in his life. You know what? He's still safe. Why? Because God, as he says, will rescue him from every evil deed and will bring him safely into his heavenly kingdom. Don't buy the lies. Don't buy the overblown hype in this cultural moment about safe spaces and safe people. If you obsess about that, you will waste your life trying to create safety where there is none. Ultimate safety is not circumstantial. Ultimate safety is not relational. Ultimate safety is only found eternally in the kingdom of God. And Paul endures because his eyes are fixed on that eternity. By now, in this moment, he knows he will not live to see the appearing of Jesus himself. But yet, he still proclaims I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. He's writing to his son in the faith, dearly loved friend, mentee, Timothy. And he's saying, Timothy, I made it. I made it. There's nothing arrogant about that statement at all. As he sits on the precipice of eternity, that hope from years earlier, if only I may finish, has now played out. And oh, that each of us, as we look our own death in the eyes someday, would be able to say exactly the same thing. See, there's the good fight of faith. There's fulfilling our ministry, the work that God has prepared for us to do. That's a really important part of following Jesus in our life. But so much of endurance in the Christian life is simply making it to the end with your faith intact. It's not winning the race. Paul doesn't speak of winning the race. It's finishing the race. It's keeping the faith. It's holding on. And you might hold on dragging, limping, bleeding, grieving, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, like Paul says in 2 Corinthians. Make it to the end of your life with your faith in Jesus intact. This is one of the best gifts that your leaders in the church can give to you your pastors, your elders, your deacons, those who mentor you in discipleship kinds of relationships. And it's also one of the best gifts that we can give each other as a church family, as friends among the people of God. Throughout our lives and in a thousand different ways, we will let each other down. 
And most of you already know this about me. If not, it's only a matter of time until you find out. I have already been and will remain an incredibly flawed and fallible example of what it looks like to fight the good fight of faith. But if someday, when you put me in the ground, you can say of me, he finished the race and he kept the faith, then I will have lived my life well. And then Jesus, the righteous judge, will say to me, as he will say to all of us who love his appearing, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. So that you and I might be this for one another, let us fix our eyes on eternity and keep them fixed there in seasons when it seems like nobody's benefiting from that, in seasons when it seems like there's no fruit coming from that, when it doesn't feel like it's worth it, and when you can think of 50 different ways that would be easier to live your life, when your friends walk away, when your kids, even as into their adulthood, don't want to listen to you because the world has not slapped out that arrogance and overconfidence of them yet. It's still there. Through all of that, fix your eyes not on the cost and the suffering itself. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on eternity. Let it be said of you at the end of your life, he has finished the race. She has kept the faith. You have no idea, truly, you will not have any idea in this earthly life how powerful the testament of your endurance will prove to be. Third and finally, the everyday nature of endurance. It seems like this letter should just end at the end of verse 8. Yes? That's the climax of 2 Timothy. Paul declares, I've made it. I'm ready for eternity. Eternity is ready for me. Just drop the mic, walk off the stage, the letter's over. But there's this whole second half of the last chapter, and it's weirdly normal. Comings and goings, logistics, next steps. Rather than end on this high point proclaiming eternity, he brings it back down to everyday life. Okay, side note, this is one of the strongest evidences for the authenticity of this letter. Like, why end with this stuff if it's not actually Paul writing actually to Timothy, who's actually in Ephesus at this point in history. The everyday nature here, though, that's instructive for us too. Christians are sometimes accused of being so heavenly-minded that we're of no earthly good. You heard that phrase before? So heavenly-minded, we're of no earthly good. But the reality for Paul, for Timothy, for us, is that we are to be so heavenly-minded, our eyes so fixed on eternity that we are of complete earthly use, the best kind of earthly use. Rather than sitting back and waiting for the appearing of Jesus, we're meant to get going and to keep going until we either die or Jesus returns. Paul is ready. He is ready for his departure. It's coming any day, but it hasn't happened yet. And if there's another hour or another day or another week to live, he's going to live it. He requests in this last half of this chapter three things at the end of his life. The presence of Timothy, he wants Timothy with him, his cloak, and his books and parchments. And it's so normal. It's so human. He's, he's lonely. So he wants the presence of one of the dearest people in the world to him. He wants Timothy there. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? Through this section, he recounts all the desertion that he feels for sinful reasons like Demas and Alexander, for ministry travel like Titus and Crescens and Tychius. 
He talks about the loyalty of Luke, the one who stayed with him. There's reconciliation and restoration playing out when he talks about Mark. Years earlier, Paul and Barnabas had a sharp disagreement, and they split ways because of Mark. Barnabas wanted to take him. Paul did not. They went their own ways. So it's a huge statement that Mark is useful to Paul for ministry. That's a lot of restoration and reconciliation there. There's forgiveness of the Christians in Rome for not showing up at his first defense, at his preliminary trial. He says, may it not be charged against them. There's these greetings back and forth from Christians in Rome to the Christians in Ephesus and vice versa. He talks even about the illness of Trophimus. How every day is that? A guy's sick, so he couldn't come. Two other requests. He's cold, and winter's coming, so he wants his cloak. And though we don't know exactly what they contain, he wants Timothy to bring the books and the parchments. If he's stuck in prison for as long as he's going to be there, he may as well keep reading and writing. He, he might as well keep doing something, being useful to fulfill his ministry. It's all so ordinary, maybe even mundane. Except two lines in the midst of this part of the text reveal this is anything but ordinary or mundane. They identify two things that bring about the permanent intersection of the eternal and the everyday. And in that intersection, two things that will fuel and propel our endurance until, if only I may finish, becomes I have finished. What are they? The glory of God and the grace of God. Verse 18, God will bring me safely to his kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Verse 22, the Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you all. As we read today in our words of encouragement from the book of Romans, the people of God are a people who endure. We are a people who endure. But we are only a people who endure because God himself is the God of all endurance, the God of all encouragement, as it says in Romans 15. He's glorious enough to bring to completion that which he begins. He's gracious enough to apply all of the benefits and promises of his power to us through the work of Jesus Christ. For all of our hope and all of our expectation that we might endure, Jesus is the one who endured the cross. He's the one who endured the cross, despised the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Together, the glory and the grace of God are our salvation. Together, the glory and the grace of God will become, will be our endurance. Because God is glorious and gracious, you might end up imprisoned, but the word of God is not bound. You might confront false gospels and false teachers, but as Paul's written in this letter, they will not get far. You might find none standing by you at some point in your life, but Jesus will stand by you. You might suffer to the point of losing your life, but the Lord will bring you safely to his kingdom. And so, church, in the midst of everyday life, with your eyes fixed on eternity, may you endure. May you endure. Step into the legacy of endurance that is yours as one among the people of God. And at the end of your life, like Paul, may you also declare, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Amen. Let me pray for us. God, all glory to you. Paul can't keep it in as he reaches the end of this letter. To you be the glory, now and forever. And all of your grace be with us. 
By the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray that you would now give us strength to live out this message that we have heard today. Make us people, by your glory, by your grace, who endure. We pray all these things through the name, through the life, death, and resurrection, the finished work of our Savior Jesus Christ.